I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to episode 94 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And in this episode of the Paul Weller Fan Podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by another music industry legend. This time it's the turn of former music mogul and legendary concert promoter Tim Parsons. A real joy to hear his stories from starting out as a humper at an ELO gig to promoting Jasper Carrot, punk bands and the formation of the mighty Midland Concert Promotions. As part of MCP, Tim worked closely with both the Jam and the Star Council, along with the likes of U2, NXS, Simply Red, The Police, The Boontown Rats, Oasis and Bon Jovi. We hear about his respect and love for both Paul and John Weller, Paul's dad and manager. We hear about the characters in the setup too, the likes of Kenny Wheeler, Dave Liddle, the guitar tech, Ian Harvey, the production manager, and Ray Ratsorter at the monitor desk. We'll talk Live Aid, Oasis at Nebworth, and much, much more. Let's get into it live from South Africa. Tim Parsons, thanks for joining me. It's a great pleasure. I've enjoyed listening to some podcasts of yours. People like Kenny Wheeler, who was a formative part of my promoting career, and a couple of others like Dennis Mundy was another one. So it was fascinating reading their take. I think it's a little bit like politicians when they get de-elected. When they lose their seats, they actually become honest. Uh, And you actually hear some some things where you go, I knew that's what you were thinking at the time, but you didn't say it like that. (laughs) Did you hear Martin Hopewell? Because I'm guessing you you would have crossed paths quite a bit, would you not? I will listen to it because Martin was an integral part of my early concert promoting because not only did he have the jam, he had the pretenders and... A couple of other acts like The Cure, and I'm trying to think of others. He used to work at Cowbell, which is an agency that we worked with. Another one of his contemporaries was called John Jackson, and we did a lot of work with him, mainly on rock bands. And he was working with my partner, who was called Morris Jones, used to work a lot with John Jackson on the rock bands, which we also did. And I used to work with Martin on, let's call it, the other bands rather than give them a genre. You kind of stumbled into this in a way, didn't you? In 1976, I, I saw that you were... What's called a humper? Talk me through this. What's a, what's a humper? I was doing a business studies degree at Birmingham Polytechnic. And I was only at Birmingham Polytechnic having been brought up in the northeast of England because my fiance had got a, a position at a teacher training college in Bromsgrove. I followed her, ended up at Birmingham Polytechnic. And I only got into a polytechnic because I think I'd got three A-levels, but they're all like the lowest grade or something like that. So that meant it was polytechnic life for me. I was sharing a flat with other members of Birmingham Polytechnic. So Birmingham Polytechnic had three centres, North, Centre and South. And one of my flatmates, a guy called Rob Lowy from Dagenham, who I'd love to be in contact with now, but I can't find him anywhere, was at the South Centre Birmingham Poly. And it was there that they used to organise stage crews for concerts at... Birmingham Town Hall. And Rob came back one late April, May of 1976 to say they need stage crew for ELO at Birmingham Town Hall. It was on May the 10th or something like that. Anyway, I'll do it. I'll do it. And um, it paid a a princely sum of five pounds and you got to see the gig. 
I did that, and the support was Steve Gibbons. I loved every second of it. So what a humper is, is someone that carries the equipment under the instruction of the stage crew, production manager, from the truck to the stage. There's no expertise involved whatsoever. You're just two hands and a strong back. And in those days, I think shows were really small by comparison. So I think this was a two-truck tour, which is massive in those days, because after all, it was electric-like orchestra and they had lasers. And <laughs> there were six of us. There were six of us who unloaded two articulated trucks starting at eight in the morning, and you'd probably be finished by two. And then you'd get offered the opportunity to do the changeovers between the main act and the support act, which got you a five-pound bonus. And... The spotlight, which got you another <laughs> Wow, you're racking it up. Tell me about it. Tell me about it. So anyway, um, I was doing that. I think the next gig was Leonard Cohen, who was a hero of mine, and I actually got to talk to Leonard Cohen as well. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers was another one, but they were supported by the Boomtown Rats, and I got to know the Boomtown Rats really well and followed them around and stayed with them at their mansion, in inverted commas, in Isha, and just got to know um, bands and music. And because we started doing the humping at Barbarella's, which was a legendary club in Birmingham. And um, the guy that used to organize the stage crews decided he wanted to go on to better things and become the editor of Polygon, which was the, the student newspaper. But needed someone to take up the reins. So I took up the reins and started organizing the stage crews in Birmingham, for mainly for clubs and for the town hall, and started to get to know the promoters who were doing all these gigs. I mean, the ones at the town hall weren't, weren't punk or anything like that, but the ones at Barbarella's definitely was. You got to know the promoters and you got to know the bands because you'd be seeing them. And a lot of these bands were sort of like, you know, the third band on three band bills and all the rest of it. I started putting posters up and making more money doing that at university colleges, social students unions, instrument shops, record shops, you name it. So I had a little round. So I got to know everybody really, really quickly in Birmingham and was coining it for a student on a full grant. I was absolutely coining I was loving it. One of the people I got to know was a, a company called Endale, a real ducker and diver called Dave Cork and his partner, Mike Barnett. They had a relationship with Bernie Rhodes, who's the manager of The Clash, and also with Malcolm McLaren, who looked after the Sex Pistols. So I started working for them as like their bookkeeper. I was bringing my business study. So I was doing their VAT returns, helping them with their marketing, picking up posters, distributing posters, anything going, I was doing it, but also answering the phones. So one of the, the tools that they were doing, this was in late 77, I think, was the Sex Pistols' first tour. Wow. So it was the Sex Pistols, Johnny Thunder and the Heartbreakers, The Damned, I think it was Susie in the back. I can't remember now. But. So that was the first tour. The whole thing fell apart with Bill Grundy's interview. Loads and loads of phone calls from the media and halls and all the rest of it, cancelling the gigs on the days that the principals weren't there. So I was um, fielding all of these phone calls, including one from the Newcastle Evening Chronicle, my home newspaper, and got quoted in my home newspaper, which by my father's going, what on earth are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> What are you up to? You're meant to be at college. You're meant to be doing this and all that kind of stuff. It was through doing all of those things that you came across the jam because the jam were part of a bill that Endale were doing with the clash at the Birmingham Rag Market, which was like an all-day punk festival, which needless to say got cancelled. So you'd come across the jam every now and again as sort of the third or the fourth band on the bill in sort of 77, something like that. It was at this time that I also met another promoter called Morris Jones, who was to become my partner because he was leaving the company he was with, which was called Astra International in Wolverhampton. And they had a club called the Lafayette. And I don't know if you remember, but the Sex Pistols did a tour, which was where they went out anonymously as spots. It was short for Sex Pistols on tour. And the Lafayette was one of those gigs. So I was doing posters for him, and he said I was I, that he was leaving Astro Internationals, setting up a company. Would I like to join him? And that was it. 2nd of January, 1978, MCP had been born, and I was actually still at college doing my business studies degree and very grateful to my course tutor who'd allowed me to employ myself in my year out because I couldn't get a job with British Leyland or GKN or all the other big Birmingham industrial companies. So I was employing myself and doing all sorts of stuff. And then along came this gig. So MCP started in 1978. So MCP is Midland Concert Promotions. And what is it you have to do? What is the job of Midland Concert Promotions? What's your role in, in the setup with bands, working with bands? All right. Well, there were two of us. 
And it was definitely Morris's company. I mean, I was I was an employee at the beginning. I think we had about three or four things of relevance. One was Jasper Carrot, who at the time was a phenomena. Another was um, a thing called the original Black Country Night Out, which was a review of black country humor, poetry, songs, food. So that was sort of like a gig that was going around where you'd pay one pound for a ticket, including faggots and peas. <laughs> That was the beginning. So it was ACDC was part of it as well. So Morris had a relationship with those bands. And I had a relationship with the Boomtown Rats and Dire Straits and also the police because the police had been the support band for a, a singer called Cherry Vanilla. And it was Cherry Vanilla and the police. They did the opening slot. And then they backed her for the main slot. So a promoter is very simple. You approach an agent for an artist with an idea for a gig and you produce a set of figures and you do a deal based on those set of figures it's agreed and off you go you put the tickets on sale you market the show you manage the show you hope to make money and you move on to the next one so with jasper carrot had a tv show on itv in the day when itv was just networks up and down the country individual networks so jasper carrot was michael grade's idea of a great comedian. So it started on LWT and then it went to Central TV, then it went to Tyne Tees and then it went to Grampian. And then, and we literally just followed him around when this six or eight program series was launched and we put tickets on sale after the second or third week and do due dates in that region after about eight or nine weeks. And we did about 120 shows, all of which were sold out, booking him into places like Hammersmith Odeon for two nights when the manager would go, do you really know what you're doing? And then, of course, it would sell out easily. So we were financially far more successful in the early stages than other people who might have been more organic. And it gave us the opportunity to be more risky, if you like. So we'd take on stuff that others didn't want or whatever. And we just grew very, very quickly. And through our relationship with, say, ACDC and another Birmingham band called Judas Priest, we had a relationship with one agent at Cowbell, who was a contemporary Martin Hopewell's, at which point Martin Hopewell was sort of booking support bands with us or one-off gigs with us. That's how the jam came about because Mel Bush had done their show at Hammersmith Odeon, their first big headliner. And for whatever reason, they hadn't made a relationship or a connection. And I think it would have been John and Mel, for instance. And as a result, they were looking for a new promoter. So, um, Martin came along and said, do you want to promote the jam? And of course we bit his hand off. And the tours that, so we're talking about what from so that would be from seventy eight, seventy nine, then onwards. I'm guessing, yeah, 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 yeah. So we're talking about, I mean, things like the Seaside Tour of the South Coast and the Apocalypse Tour of the UK and things like that, right? Not the Seaside Tour. That, that, I think that was before our time. I don't, I don't remember us doing a Seaside Tour, and I don't remember a tour called the Apocalypse. But you'll need to remind me of specifically where. But but we were definitely promoting them from the time they became a city hall theatre band. So like the Setting Suns period, yeah, no. things like Jam Em In and all that, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And um, wonderful days, incredible days, very special. And presumably, I mean, what perks of the job and all that is that you get to go, to, you still get to go and see some of these bands that you like live and stuff. So you were, did you get to see the Jam early doors? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, the thing is, you're on the road with them. I would be going on the road as the MCP tour rep. It was called the tour rep. So you had to be there from the first minute to the last minute of the show. So you'd be, you'd be there at eight in the morning until 11 or 12 midnight, by which time the trucks had been loaded, you moved on to the next gig and you'd driven to the next gig. It was a, a hectic, rewarding day. I was as young as they were. I mean, at the time I was like 22, couldn't get my breath because I, you know, I hadn't, I had no anticipation of being a concert promoter because I didn't know what one was. I used to go to see gigs at Newcastle City Hall as a kid and absolutely loved loved it. You know, it was just a special, special environment. I knew next to nothing about punk music. And you could probably say that my music tastes were pretty conservative at the time. So I liked rock music, which is more sort of what was called progressive rock now. I like folk music, which is probably called, you know, like an Ed Sheeran type thing now. So that was the sort of length and breadth of my musical taste. And then along came punk. And I, I was just blown away by it on vinyl less so live just because I just couldn't get the gobbing thing. And I just, I just, I just, and I, I even now I, I recoil at the thought of, can you imagine in these pandemic days? You know, probably people would have their sort of um, saliva glands removed to go into a gig these days. <laughs> 
if you can get rid of all your saliva in this bottle for us before you go in, then you can enter. Yeah. When you listen to something like The Clash's first album, and then you you just go and see the chaos of you know Mick Jones' guitar playing, and you go and see the Sex Pistols, and I mean. They were intimidating to look at, you know, a, a Joe Strummer or a Johnny Rotten on the vocal microphone was a, an intimidating thing. You know, I mean, like they just captivated you with the brutality of the performance, if you like, because mm. it was loud, it was deafening, it was frantic. Out of a musical history of progressive rock and folk music, it was... Um, the seismic shift. <laughs> being on tour then with the jam with Paul, Bruce and Rick and being around talent must be really exciting for, for a young man. It is because it's, it's the creativity. I mean, we all grow up wanting to be a football or a musician or, you know, once we've got over the fireman phase, I did have a guitar, but I was never any good at it. I just didn't get it. And I liked writing poems, therefore let's call them lyrics and things like that. So to be around people that found it effortless, that could have 2,000 people punching the air, synchronized or mouthing their very lyrics the day after the album came out. You know what I mean? See that sort of slavish following. To see the, the excitement of the performance, but also to be close to them and see their excitement, just the, the thrill of, you know, like being a performer. And for, for a three-piece band, you know, the jam, first and foremost, are brilliant musicians because they made a huge sound. And one of the great privileges of being around a band is being able to stand behind the stacks, like so you can be behind the guitar stack or the bass stack or next to the guy on the mixer desk where he's just got channels of what they're doing. And just here, you know, someone like Paul, I don't think Paul's ever referred to as being one of the best ever guitarists, but I, I truly think he is because when you play a guitar chord and it's really clean, it's a bit like, you know, someone with a playing the perfect golf shot and it goes ping, you know, it's that sweet spot. And Paul played the guitar where every chord was a sweet spot. He could put in a guitar solo really, really easily and really, really quickly. And he wouldn't have been able to do any of those things without the fact that Rick and Bruce was just such a solid rhythm section. They had really good sound engineers really good mixer desk in the, whether it be monitors or mixer and they were really really great musicians i always think that some of that was down to the fact that when they did their sound checks they let the punters in and there was always such a huge number of punters hanging around a jam show that hadn't got tickets and they would be allowed to come in so you had as many as two thousand people in for the sound check so the sound check was sort of like this vignette of the performance you know it's incredible i still think that remarkable i'm going to see paul in brighton tomorrow night so the time of recording he's on tour the brighton gigs tomorrow evening and wouldn't it be great come on now you know a little afternoon sound check let us all in that would be lovely I, I still can't get my head around the fact they used to do that every gig and also i mean i used to never i, I couldn't get my head around it because it was just so awkward because you know we had to get security in for the afternoon whereas previously you just have someone on the stage door so you'd have to have security in. and then the thing is that the punters didn't sort of react like it was a sound check. They reacted like it was a gig. And as a result, you know, seats got broken. They used to have people come in to repair the seats. And it was just organized chaos, you know, out of, out of chaos comes order. It was a bit of both, really. It just added the whole, the whole vibe. But it also meant that my relationship with John and Kenny would naturally be strained because I spent all of my time going, you know, you can't do this and you can't do that. And I'm like this 22, 23-year-old trying to be responsible to someone who could be my dad. It was a really, it was a relationship I adored and I look back on as very, very special to me at the time. And I didn't have a great relationship with my father. So to have a relationship with band managers who could have been my father was quite a nice substitute, if you like. Some of the band members, the current band members, have talked about that bonding that you have when you're on the road together it being like silly back in the day when you know you didn't have your, your mobile phone there was no interruptions i think kenny was talking about that as well it's like when you were out and about on the road you were on the road you were away from your partners mm -hmm. there was no communication really until you got to the hotel and people could maybe get hold of you then but it was you were in your bubble i guess is the point wasn't it yeah it was a little bit different for us because you know i was going home we were based in the midlands so i was going home quite a lot you know if you're in manchester one day sheffield the next you probably go home. I lived in Cannock or Hensford, or uh, so it was on the right side of town. So I'd probably go home. So I had more of a home life, and also, you know, my partner at the time would come to the gigs, so she would know the band and 
John and Kenny and all that kind of stuff. So it was kind of nice from that point of view. It was all, I mean, the thing is that we, we all grew up together. We fell in love. We got married. We had kids. We divorced. You know, and in the 25 years I was concert promoting, and you, you know, you think about the bands I worked with for 10, 15, 20, and 25 years. We all went through every possible human emotion at the same time as going through every professional emotion. I was going to ask how difficult your job was, because from a jam point of view, I mean, at the time you took them on, it's early days, but then they're smashing it. They're having number one singles. They're, you know, presumably it became a lot easier to promote them and sell out, I guess. Well, there was never a problem selling out because they were, you know, one of the bands at the moment. And in terms of, you know, we were thinking about the ticket price. We weren't just going, right, any old price will do. The difficulty with promoting the jam was, Let's say it's twofold, and I'll probably add to it. Maybe so. The, the first difficulty was the actual process of working on the road, and how difficult it was because of you know Kenny and his security team thought they knew better than the people that worked a venue for the, the decades. So it was difficult finding a balance between what Kenny and the security team wanted for Paul and John. And what the venue wanted, because the next day they got a Symphonia, which was sold out, and they needed all their seats in good condition. <laughs> yeah. I had a responsibility to the venue and also to my relationship to the champ, because I wanted to keep working with them. So the last thing you want to do is work with someone that's a pain in the ass. And there were lots of peculiarities on the road, which, you know, John, for instance, didn't like cameras and didn't like people bootlegging. That in itself was really difficult because you're looking to see what happens at the very beginning of the show when it goes mental. And then while you're trying to control that, you got John in your ear because such and such is doing a bootleg or someone's got a car. But it was quite, you, you get used to these things. So, for instance, the first three songs of any performance by any artist are the most hectic. And after that, nothing untoward happens unless it's something very specific, an accident. Or so all you had to do was get through the first three songs, and at which point it would all quieten down. It's funny because there are industry standards. Like I don't know if you noticed, but whenever you see photographers at the front of the stage after three songs, they rush it out, and that's mainly to do with the artist doesn't want pictures with sweat dripping off the end of their nose. But <laughs> I realise that. And it's usually around about the fourth song, they introduce a ballad or something like that because they're knackered, you know. <laughs> there were some unknown industry standards in that. But the, the biggest challenge was for the jam as they were getting bigger because they didn't like playing seated gigs. And there were only so many gigs that were standing. And we were having to be, we were scouring the country to find venues which were stand-up and big so in that process, we found loads of venues for the jam, and they were the first band to go in, which actually became standards for other bands. So if I run through them all, I mean, somewhere like D-Side Leisure Center, this is like a an ice rink, whatever, in the middle of friggin' nowhere, North Wales, and you get like 6,000 people in there, or whatever. I mean, Leeds Queen's Hall was another place. Birmingham Bingley Hall was another. Whitley Bay Ice Rink was another. Ingliston. The glamour. <laughs> oh, yeah, tell me about it. Um, it was really funny, actually, because it was, it was the first gig at Whitley Bay Ice Rink, and um, they sent, Tiny Tees TV sent along a film crew. I mean, it was big... In those days, you know, it was these gigs at new venues with thousands of people it was like really, really big deal. So Time T send along a crew and why are you doing it? How are you doing it? And they filmed the sound check and all the rest of it. And in the end, I think it was Tom Coyne, a wise old sage, would say at the end of it, I wonder if the jam are earning frozen assets from that concert. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Now, when the split comes in 1982, how much of a surprise was that for you, having been on the road with them, seeing them working? Was it was it a shock? I mean, I guess at that point you have such a massive roster because you're putting on like thousands of shows each year through your company, aren't you? And there are these big open air shows, everything going on. This is an undisciplined business, Dan. You know, like you don't you don't put the jam on your balance sheet on the first of January because A, you don't know they're going to tour, and B, you don't know they're going to release an album. So it's impossible to factor in a band in terms of income, sustainability, or whatever else. And it would always be the case that, and the same thing applies for everybody, was employed for Paul. It was the Paul and John show. And nothing wrong with that particularly, but I mean, John wasn't looking out specifically for Rick or, or Bruce. And I, and I don't say that in a bad way, because you know whatever he was doing for Paul as the jam 
was very, very good for Rick and for Bruce because they, they shared in the benefit of it. So did it come as a surprise? Well, yeah, it did come as a surprise, but band spitting up, band members dying, sadly, it's part of the business we're in. These things happen and, and continue to happen. I mean, we've lost some really, really good, close friends like Michael Hutchins, like James Honeyman Scott and Pete Farnden, like Bon Scott. And going back to the point I made, you know, we, we grew up together. We, we fell in love together. We got married. We had kids and we, but we didn't die together. And it, that, that was, that was a far more shocking thing to deal with than it was to deal with a band splitting up. So I, I was kind of really sad for Bruce and Rick because they'd had this phenomenal three to four years, these three boys from working with, with John, where they'd gone from, making a bit of fun to making a significant income and enjoying a good life. So I felt more sorry for them because I, I knew that the style council was going to happen. I mean, Paul gave the jam up to do something else, not to give it up. So and I, I've watched over the years, you know, Bruce went to work with SLF, which is another band that I worked with. So he was in a good place because I know Jake and Ali, well, he replaced Ali, but Jake's a really, really great guy. So I knew he was a good place. And Rick and I have kept in touch not not my i think the last time we would have spoken was that seven or eight years ago because he had the the alternative jam thing going on well lovely i mean they're, they're both really really lovely guys and i was so full of respect for bruce at john's funeral because bruce had lost his wife pat to cancer i think a month or so before john's passing and you could say that bruce could have harbored some sort of resentment towards john but he turned up at the funeral i thought i thought in his circumstances and given the circumstances that was an example of a really really special guy so you know hats off and respect to bruce for that and for everything else he's done because he's um he and rick are lovely lovely people the style council let's talk the style council then i'm guessing from a promotion point of view i mean it's very different in the sense that i mean there's none of that gobbing from from whatever but i guess you have to promote them differently because it's a uh, it, everybody's talks on the podcast about how suddenly you know there were lots more women turning up to gigs it felt more 50 50 in terms of the audience so a softer approach from a promotion point of view did your role change an awful lot with that band yeah because it well first of all Paul wasn't bothered about standing anymore. From a security point of view, my, my life became immeasurably easier. But we still had the same security retinue. And I always struggled with just how many people were on the security team. The influence they thought they could have with me, like there were Kenny. I, I did struggle with I, I respected Kenny. I respected his role. I respected his relationship with John and with Paul. But the others were hired hands. With respect to them, they were hired hands. And being told by a hired hand that you don't know what you're doing is not something I took too kindly to. And I think it's fair to say that um, one of the things about the Star Council happening is my relationship with John and Kenny soured because I just, I was becoming more confident, A, as a promoter and B, as an organiser. And I just didn't take kindly to be disrespected and treated with contempt, which is how I felt some of the sidekicks were behaving towards me but it was it was really easy to start council was really it's like doing a theater tour with jasper carrot with respect because you know there's never there's no issues with damage whatever else there were nice theaters there was a nice vibe it was a lovely show we all went home and there was none of that like you know thousands of people in for the sound check any of that stuff that would all change yeah i presume that they would but i can't remember to be honest with you it was, it was such a big deal with the jam but it would not have been a big deal with the style council and if the audience profile changed then the number of people outside the stage door would have changed with it yeah true yeah. the and how long were you with them for that, that period of the style council when when did you finish working with the the wellers and on that i think we fell out on a tour that ended up at the Royal Albert Hall. I say fell out. It, it wasn't, you know, I hate your fucking guts. It was, um, I think everything has a time span. Certainly in terms of business relationships, there are things you do really well with people. But even then, you know, you move on because your circumstances change. And when I was told I was not, not doing the next Dial Council tour, it didn't come as a big surprise. And if they all thought I was a pain in the ass, then so be it. But I think probably in retrospect, they might have understood why? Because of my circumstances. I mean, it certainly wasn't because I was up myself and that type of thing. It was more just to do with the fact that just it just wasn't working. I mean, at this point, so we're talking. I, mean, I guess this is this ten year period where I think it's fair to say your company MCP is it's, you're the biggest 
there is in this world, right? So this would be from like the mid eighties to the mid nineties. There's the biggest one that exists and, and some huge big events, things like Oasis at Nebworth. We'll have to talk about in a sec. In massive gigs with the likes of U2 and things like that. But we should talk Live Aid because the Style Council are there. I mean, one of the many acts, obviously. I've heard that that's the achievement you're most proudest of. And you mentioned Boomtown Rats earlier on. I'm guessing that's where the connection kind of came from to, to sort that. I wouldn't say it's the event I'm most proud of. It's certainly the event I feel the most proud for someone like Bob. And it was lovely to be so so close to him while that happened. So we'd work with the uh, the Boomtown Rats forever and a day. And I was always very, very happy in their company. It was always great fun. It was always a laugh. And like I said, they used to have this um, mansion in Isha, which the record company provided for them. So, you know, we'd do gigs and travel through the night and end up waking up in Isha. And it was just fun, you know, really, really good fun. And again, you know, you you know their partners, their wives, their lives, or this, or that. The Band-Aid had happened in December 84. Bob rang up in January 85 and said he wanted to do Live Aid. Could we set up a meeting with Wembley? stadium so off we all went to Wembley Stadium and got treated like idiots <laughs> by by the management of Wembley Stadium who you know they weren't prepared to do a deal on the rent they weren't prepared to do anything at all anyway that was the that, that was the start of Live Aid and then, then there's loads of books and whatever that have documented it ever since so my role in it and the role of MCP was sort of bumbling along until such time Harvey Goldsmith who got involved which would have been around about the April at which point Bob's ideas got even bigger because he wanted to do this transatlantic thing. Yeah, of course, yeah. There was the gig in, was it Philadelphia as well, wasn't it? Yeah. And um, I, it would be fair to say that we we definitely played second fiddle. And I'm very happy to say we played second fiddle rather than steal any false credit. But it was fascinating to be in on every meeting and to be around Bob as he bludgeoned his way through the establishment to get what he wanted. Getting things like the BBC involved was probably the reason that Live Aid happened and the way it happened because once they got involved with their logistical skills their worldwide logistical skills their live logistical skills and when the BBC threw their resources at something it worked it was just fascinating to be around what is considered to be musical history and it definitely was the case that when you watch that particular show and you see it live on TV and you see a gorgeous sunny day and you see the best artists in the world and it links up exotically with Philadelphia. And Phil Collins is doing the transatlantic thing on Concord. And you just add all these little stories to this tapestry. And you can see that the, the open air show mentality kicked off with the worldwide public on that event. And from then onward, open air shows became events rather than festivals, one band, rather than multi-days, multi-bands, all that kind of stuff. And um, and it launched careers. It didn't kill, that was the other thing. It never killed a career, but it launched many, many careers. And the Queen being a classic example, they were in the absolute doldrums at that time. And Freddie just did, ripped it up. And they went from not being able to sell out theatres in 1984 to being able to sell out Nebworth in 1986. Mad, isn't it? Yeah, you mentioned Nebworth. So let's talk, let's talk the Oasis gig because, I mean, that was what, 250,000 people, something like that, wasn't it, over the course of a couple of days? Yeah, because if you're going to talk about being proud of something, I'd definitely say we were, we were really proud of that event because ignoring the fact you've sold that many tickets, or, but you're actually creating a small town. 125,000 is bigger than a lot of quite established towns in the UK. You've got about three weeks to build it up because you've got to create the stadium and you've got about 10 days to take it down. And when you think about government projects and council projects and all the rest of it and how long they take, it was a phenomenal event to be involved with and to partake in and be part of. It's great. You know, there's some lovely people involved. You know, David Cobbold, who's Lord Cobbold, I think his name was. He was sort of um, quite a... A funky hippie with his family. They were the family that owned Nebworth, and they were they were fun to work with. It was kind of fun to to teach established people like the police. You know, when you when you've got the police going now, laddie, I'll tell you how to organise stuff, and you sort of point out when was the last time you organised something that had one hundred and twenty five thousand people at it? Never. I don't think you should be telling me what to do. You be listening to what we've got to say. We did stuff like setting up a coach network throughout the country. So we had over 30,000 people coming by coach. So that's like 600 coaches with special one-off route, you know, one-way routes in and one-way routes out. And it just meant that it was a lot easier to get in and get out. 
So none of the fabled stories of how long it took to get out of Nebworth were relevant to us and setting up special trains with a, a train company that had never done it before. It just being part of applying common sense to a big problem with people that hadn't got any experience of common sense. It was, it was kind of fun. And it was a co-promotion with SJM. Their point was a guy called Chris York who used to work for us. And our point was a guy called Connell Dodds. They were the people with the contacts with the artists and they were really young. So it's kind of nice to be the sage old dude in the corner. And um, <laughs> the project manager in me loves this. I mean, I've got, I'll be like, oh my God, the, all the logistics that you're having to think about that haven't been done before. You know, Nebworth, it was not like Nebworth was a traditional music venue that ran loads and loads of gigs, was it? We always used to have a really fantastic festival team around us, whether it be security, whether it be electricians, plumbers, car parking, whatever the role was. We had people we'd worked with for a long, long time that we knew would never let us down. They were great gigs. I, I have to say i've always struggled with oh noel was forever pointing you know pointing his finger in my chest and telling me about how i should organize security it used to drive me nuts <laughs> you can never never really have a conversation with liam unless you wanted to talk about football and it was just it was a fractious relationship but at the same time it's one i really enjoyed because their, their manager marcus russell a new zealander called alec were people i'd met through working with the the a classic example of concert promoting is you sometimes get a really big gig completely by accident because you work with that band as a support band or that manager as a support manager or uh, that agent. You just nurture relationships and then you continue those relationships through careers. I mean, a couple of things I wanted to ask you off the back of that. So one was, um, and Paul talks about Band-Aid as being that day of being just quite a lot of divas and egos in the room and maybe mm. not everybody being there for the right reason. And then Live Aid may be a knock-on effect to that as well because you, you mentioned some people career-wise weren't in the best place but actually saw you know once a couple of people have signed up the right people have signed up to live they suddenly wanted to be a part of it and it obviously boosted their career and stuff but who are the biggest divas that, that have been part of your journey so far and where does mr weller rate well paul's not a diva end of he's nothing of the sort he's very conscientious you're not going to get paul standing at the bar telling you loads and loads of jokes you know he's not that he's not that. he's so he's he's a very intelligent intellectual nice person diva is not an expression to be coined for bruce could have been a bit of diva <laughs> bruce had his moments where he had a fit of peak let's call it a fit of peak um in terms of divas divas were usually people who were pains in the ass for me rather than people who were full of their creative expression shall we call it the, big, the biggest pain in the ass was um Axel Rose by a country mile. He had this, there's a, there's a syndrome and I can't remember what it's called, probably because I don't ever want to look it up on Google, <laughs> but he had this, this thing where creating anxiety in others gave him massive pleasure. So he would do it deliberately. And that was his gratification. He had this thing about wanting to go on really late and wanting to go on and really late and play for three hours and, 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 and all well and good. If you, if you're playing a club or you're playing a venue that doesn't have a curfew or that isn't surrounded by residents or that has a license. If you're doing Wembley Stadium and the show has to finish at 10 o'clock and you've got this arsehole guy saying, I don't want to go on until half past nine, I want to play for three hours. Let's <laughs> um, say that, literally that uh, Axel Rose and I didn't see eye to eye. But, um, I think he's the only artist where they've ever put security on me so I don't go and hit, hit him. <laughs> I can't think of... Um, any divas because you, you can't take them in isolation uh, apart from Axel Rose because you know like if someone's a diva it doesn't mean that the other 40 people on the road are yes, and we've all yeah, the first yeah. nine of us have all got the same opinion about the diva oh let him be he's a fucking arsehole <laughs> tell me about the time that Diana Ross sent you to go and get a, her Chinese takeaway <laughs> she was going out with Gene Simmons one of the one of the great things about being a concert is not so much listening to the bands playing on stage it's their girlfriends so she was going out with Gene Simmons now Gene Simmons you always used to see painted up and all that kind of stuff with a tongue down to his knees we were doing this show at um stafford bingley hall not a renowned location he turns up and because he's with her he's wearing this double-breasted blazer and smart slacks and you know italian leather loafers and all that kind of stuff he's like what <laughs> <laughs> who is this man <laughs> by the way this they were supported by bon jovi so going back to my place my point about you know you often then forge a relationship yeah. with support so that was the beginning of our relationship with bon jovi so he turns up looking all death smart and debonair with Ms. Ross. And of course, Ms. Ross wants this and Ms. Ross wants that. So you have backstage catering and all that kind of stuff, but for whatever reason, she wasn't part of that. And she was sort of like hanging out in the dressing room on her own. Nobody could see the diva. Anyway, the word came out that Ms. Ross 
really like Chinese food. She'd like Chinese. She'd like a Chinese meal this evening. So we literally had to send out for a Chinese takeaway to Stafford. <laughs> <laughs> so the irony wasn't lost on me. Oh, how funny. Brilliant. And then in terms of MCP came to an end, end of the nineties, you sold to Live Nation. Live Nation, obviously, I mean, God, I think every concert under the world seems to be a Live Nation gig these days. I mean, that was a, presumably was a hard decision because it sounds from me talking to you that you absolutely loved what you were doing, loved the industry. Have you, missed it since or have you kind of you know, got fingers in pie since it wasn't a hard decision dan at the time in the in europe in the uk no one was buying concert promoters you never ever thought that you were going to be consolidated it was going on in america and i'd seen it happening in america and I, and I have to admit that i'd set in place ways of making us more attractive as a business to anybody should they wish to acquire us we were doing a deal with the shepherds bush empire group raymond gobe group and uh, a football agent to try and make it look like we were sort of a more attractive entertainment behemoth so when somebody came along and they want to buy you it wasn't a difficult decision in terms of the money because effectively they were consolidating the next nine years of your life, having nine fantastic years. And it didn't happen like that in concert promotion. So it wasn't that much of a decision. It was, um, it was more to do with our staff, what would happen to them, our location, Walsall, what would happen to us, what it would mean in terms of you know career and all the rest of it. So it wasn't a difficult decision. And it, and it also wasn't a difficult decision to, with, I don't call it retirement, I hate that word, but definitely to withdraw from being a concert promoter, which I did 20 years ago. I mean, my dad had died when he was 52. I knew how much he'd missed and I wanted to be able to enjoy the time of my life that he hadn't had. I didn't see that I could take my career any further and therefore thought the only thing that was likely to happen in years to come would be I disappoint myself. And I don't hang on to the idea that I was a concert promoter and it meant something in terms of status and ego. But that wasn't difficult giving it up. And we've had a fantastic life as a result of it. You're dining me up in Cape Town and we're, we, we are incredibly fortunate and we have a, a beautiful home and a beautiful location and a beautiful climate and loads of other things you can put beautiful as, a, as an adjective. So we have a great life and uh, we're very happy here. And we've been very happy in the last 20 years, not working. Working, which I consider to be the best career I've ever had. I miss nothing because I, I do so much every day that I really get something out of rather than having to argue with an agent or a manager or a security guy about what you can and can't do and what should be straightforward common sense, really. Oh, brilliant. Well, look, um, I mean, well-deserved and, and a lovely sentiment in the way you put it. Before we go, I have to ask you about the characters in the Weller camps. You mentioned Kenny. You mentioned mm-hmm. Dennis. So Dennis Monday, obviously a key part of the whole Jam Style Council thing. Dennis was the one that put us in touch as well. So what are you memories of Dennis and working with Dennis? It was lovely working with record company executives whose love of a band and the music was absolutely something. So Dennis had a huge love of music and I wouldn't say the jam was necessarily within that genre he really liked. I think he's more of a jazz guy because he was sort of, I think he was an Essex boy or East London. He just got a really nice way about him which probably endeared himself to John you know that it was sort of like this ducker and diver thing but he was great and Vic Coppersmith heaven he always used to hang around he was this very very quiet individual who had a huge amount to do with the jam sound and the interpretation of what Paul had in mind so they were great John I absolutely adored but we locked horns a lot but um, I absolutely adored him because he's just a, an honest guy I stupidly once bought a boat and I called it tickety boo because that's what John used to say all the time I did try and get to like rum and pep because that's what John used to drink all the time, rum and peppermint cordial. And I did manage to get into the card school and escape with my winnings. So I I bought my first ever SLR camera on the basis of winning £300 in the card school at the end of a tour in Glasgow. So so I only ever played on the last day of the tour because they didn't expect me to get in on the next day. And lose it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wise, wise man. <laughs> Kenny was great fun to be around. He, he, a lot of natural, normal, lovely guy. Um, Dave Little, who was a guitar tech, uh, sort of a bit of a likable buffoon. Everybody took the piss out of him. Ian Harvey, who was the production manager, was a quintessential, stereotypical Scott. Really, really hard worker. Ray Salter, rat, on the the mixer desk. It's not on the mixer desk, on the monitor desk. Another Another guy that had a huge amount to do with the sound, because when you're a three-piece band, you really do need someone to get your sound and the sound you need to hear across to you really, really well. Probably a very understated role. There's just loads and loads of people 
that you just came across within the, the jam camp that were just great. But we, we were all naive. We were all innocent. You know, we were all in our early 20s, apart from John and, you know, a few of the road crew. So we were all wide-eyed innocents having the time of our lives, of which, in my case, the jam was just one small part of this whole thing that was going on with lots of other bands at the time, which was really, really exciting. You know, having worked with the jam was a really good experience in terms of how you then work subsequently with a with another band. The police really benefited from working with the jam because they did a lot of the venues that the jam did that we'd found with the jam. I'm trying to think of other bands that we worked with that were difficult that I just didn't, it just wasn't a problem because we'd worked with the jam. We'd got, oh, the class was another example. I mean, a, a difficult manager, Bernard Rhodes, with a so-called difficult band, wanting to do weird and wonderful things like the Casbah Club Tour was one of them where they were trying to do different things all the time. But because we worked with the jam, it was like no big deal and you could put it together and you don't have to be everybody's best friend. So sometimes you just have to put it all together, stand in the corner and let them get on with it. Because if you try and get in the middle of it, you make a mess of the arrangements because you become the promoters a necessary inconvenience or a lot of the process of putting a gig on. You know, you need the promoter to make it happen, but you don't need the promoter to think he's made it happen. Yeah. A lot of promoters, and we won't name names, we've got egos that involve them standing in front of microphones doing the big I am, when in reality, all they've done is sell the ticket. Yeah. conductor do that. <laughs> now, I mentioned earlier on about Paul Weller live as a solo artist and currently time recording on tour. Is Paul solo something you've experienced? I haven't been to see Paul solo since. I've, I've listened to the music a lot and liked the music a lot, but I've not been to see solo. But the last I heard of Paul was my youngest daughter lives in um, Maida Vale and goes for a cup of coffee at the same place that Paul goes for a cup of coffee. And she said to me, hey, Dad, did you used to work with Paul Weller? And I said, yeah, of course I did. Go and say hello. Say hello to him. And uh, so she went and said hello to Paul. My name's Bonnie Parsons. My dad was Tim Parsons. And he said he used to work with you. And he says, hi, you were a lovely person to work with. But Paul went, thank you. It's <laughs> 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 all I can tell you about my relationship with Paul in <laughs> 20 years. Uh, right, this has been so lovely. I've got two final questions for you before you go. And if you listen to the podcast, you'll know what they are. So you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the Jam, the Star Council, or Solo. What are you going to go with? You might think this is a little bizarre. I'm going to go with English Rose. Oh. And the reason I'm going with that is because it was lovely to see Paul so desperately in love with Jill. Again, you know, the experience of being around people in their every living moment and Paul and Jill were almost physically inseparable. You know, they sort of hung on to one another for a year or 18 months. And that he could articulate, you know, and given that he was sort of like one of the premium exponents of so-called punk music, which I don't think they ever were, but anyway, um, that he could then write a song so beautifully genuine and sincere and have the confidence to put it on an album surrounded by, you know, 11 or 12 tracks of the usual chaos. I think um, that would be um, my song for that reason, purely for sentimental reasons. But for musical reasons, it would be going underground simply because it's an epic of its time. And, you know, we're listening to it 40 years on and it still rocks the house very, very comfortably. Brilliant lyrics. I mean, as I said, I don't think Paul's ever been thought of as an outstanding guitarist, which he is, but I think that some of his lyrics for some of his songs at that time, if you take it back to, you know, the mid-70s and think about, you know, look at what the cars looked like in the mid-70s and what the haircuts looked like in the mid-70s and the fashion. And then you look at Paul's, listen to Paul's lyrics and just see how far ahead of the time they were and how real they were. And listening to them on Radio 1, which was just like this vanilla radio station, very important. Right, final question. Um, the purpose of this podcast is not least to talk to amazing people like yourself and dig into your careers and your experience and your links with Weller and, and all of that as well. But it's to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. If it happens, what should I ask him? Did he enjoy being the jam? And if not, why not? My perception is that he enjoyed a lot of the early bits in the back of a van, pissing about getting drunk with his mates, and maybe not the bit where it kind of went over that peak or up that peak, if you like, and was kind of well, on top of the world. But There was a tipping point at some stage where Paul went from doing absolutely everything he wanted really, really well to being expected to do something he no longer loved. And I, I don't know what that moment was, what that song was, what that gig was, what that argument was. I don't know what it was, but it'd be absolutely fascinating because he's a very brave individual musically because to sacrifice whatever they were 
for a musical ideal that nobody understood was a very, very brave decision. So it must have been something really fundamental. It's not like he woke up one day and go, you know, he's like cutting his nails thinking, nah, jam, no thanks. There's something else to it. And it would be lovely to know what that was because it would give you an insight into his confidence as a musician. That's a great question. Hey, Tim, this has been so brilliant. I've loved every second of chatting with you. Thank you so much for inviting me into your home there and and having the conversation with me. Thanks so much. It's a great pleasure. And I've really enjoyed listening to the podcast, previous podcasts of of people who I consider to be very, very big friends and, and contemporaries of the time. So there are many, many podcasts, which is just an extension of lads being lads. In fact, a lady I knew talking about podcasts. Yeah, well, every thirty-year-old man's got a podcast. For God's sake. <laughs> I think this one's particularly relevant, and I wish you well in finally meeting Paul. And if you do, say hi from me. I shall. Thank you, Tim. Thanks so much for your time, there. I wish you well. Well, there you go. My thanks once again to Tim Parsons. What a lovely guy, and what an amazing lineup of people he's worked with. And congratulations on that well-deserved retirement too. I beg your pardon. His well-deserved withdrawal from the music industry. That's it, right? Just a little envious as he showed me around his home under Table Mountain in South Africa, looking out over what would have been, what, the South Atlantic, I think? Absolutely stunning. Thanks for listening. Check out my website for more information. Get yourself a virtual coffee or even some of our new exclusive official merchandise. It all helps to support the show too. PaulWellerFanPodcast.com If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please do share on your social media channels. You can even leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts as well. Get in touch on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Instagram and Facebook, PaulWellerFanPodcast. In the next episode, I chat with Phil Vecox, sax player and arranger from the Jules Holland Band to working with Paul Weller on some brilliant albums. We're talking A Kind Revolution, True Meanings, Other Aspects, On Sunset and Fat Pop. It's another great guest on the podcast, so make sure you tune in. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.